and welcome to this edition of the Rooster Crows podcast. My name is Judy Pressman. Today we're talking about racism and the Bible. The idea that one of our primary identities is defined by our skin color is common sense in our society. But it wasn't always that way. The Bible rarely described how anyone looks, and yet it has been used to justify racism for as long as racism in the West has existed. Is this just a misunderstanding, or has the Bible helped us to get to our modern crisis of racism? That's what Reverend Stephen Milton discusses today with Dr. Hiren Kim Craig of the University of Toronto. She has spent years teaching about racism and colonization in Christian seminaries. She believes that the Bible has a lot to answer for, and it can also be an important part of the solution. So, um, welcome everyone. Uh, This is Reverend Stephen Milton, and um, I want to talk about racism and the Bible today. I realize I am a pinky white man who looks like he came from the north of France, Um, so I know that my perspective is certainly not um, a uh, perspective that should be just taken at face value. So I wanted some help. So I asked around to some friends, who, who could I talk to who really knows this stuff? And um, they told me I should go to Hiran Kim Craig, who is a professor of homiletics at Emmanuel College in Toronto. She's been teaching anti-racism uh, in her courses for more than 10 years. She's been doing racial justice workshop training for people in the United Church of Canada. And she just wrote an anti-racism study guide for the people of the United Church of Canada, which will come out in the fall. So, uh, Professor Kim Craig, welcome. Thank you very much, Stephen. This is an honor uh, and real privilege to be a part of this wonderful podcast program that you're running. Well, thanks, and thanks for being here. So let's start with how did you get interested in um, anti-racism and the Bible? Well, you know, I am racialized, uh, meaning non-white, and uh, my skin color and the way that I look uh, affects um you know, the perception of the people about how I see in the world. So it's something that I cannot deny or erase. Um, And, you know, I studied post-colonial theories uh, as part of my doctoral studies. And colonialism cannot be fully understood without knowing how this race and racism came about, especially during the modern uh, European colonialism. So that's how I got into into academic uh, area. And then really, you know, as a feminist also, personal is political. And that my personal identity as a racialized person navigating the world with this body (laughs) uh, is very political um, because one of the, you know, critical forms of uh, oppression is racism. And so, I mean, lots of people, of course, of color um, can get by without knowing anything about how race and the Bible intersect. So um, as a as a Christian academic, um, Mm -hmm. I mean, there's lots of Christian academics who don't talk about this at all, but um, you have been looking into it. So what what led you to start studying the Bible from this perspective? It's really true that um, when you say you know, 
the Bible has a racism and how does that look like, right? And then that's not very obvious question because the very words of race or racism do not appear in the Bible. Yeah, because one of the things which is curious about the Bible is that it's hard to tell what almost anybody looks like, right? Like, yeah, right. You, you know, most of the time you can't tell if someone's tall or short, thin or fat, much less anything about their skin color. That's um, right. There's yeah. so few and references. That's right. Yeah, the physical features, uh, stature, those are not a concern, I guess, of the biblical writers. Um, you know, but that being said, that uh, the very notion of the race and racism do not appear or, you know, exist in the Bible. The many stories in the Bible, though, uh, contain discrimination against particular groups of people by other groups of people. Um, and uh, to me, you know, race is always intersectional, meaning, uh, you know, person is let alone only one kind, right? So there is always gender that is related to culture, that is related to ethnicity, that is related to, you know, race and other um, markers that, uh, kind of create one's identity. Um, and so in that regard, there are so many obvious stories of oppression and, and discrimination um, due to their differences in the Bible. Yeah, there's no shortage of hatred in the Bible, right? I mean, yeah, <laughs> anybody who, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, people are finding reasons to hate each other all the time in the Bible, uh, right. often, often based on religious differences, certainly, mm -hmm. but not just that, right? National differences make a big, make a big difference. Right. Um, and yeah. everybody seems to be defined by either their nation or their religious beliefs. Um, but not yeah. by their skin color, which I think is interesting for us because we've been living with racism now for like 500 years where people That's just right. take it as a mm -hmm. matter of matter of faith, really, that, you know, one of the primary aspects of your identity as a person is going to be related to your skin color. Mm -hmm. And yet when you crack open the Bible, nobody's talking about that. Um, mm -hmm. Which is interesting. It makes us feel like we've taken we've somehow taken a left turn at Albuquerque somewhere, and we've gotten into this new way of thinking, which has obviously proven to be rather poisonous. Yeah, but you know, in terms of the nationalism and um, fight over the others, whether it's a land or uh, economic interest or whatever, um, I also think that uh, religion is a part of the game, right? So it. It's not the sole reason why we are doing that, but religion is always implicated. So here are some examples I, I think we could talk about uh, kind of digging into some of the biblical stories. For, for example, I mean, one of the most pivotal stories for Judeo-Christian is Exodus, right? And the very notion of the God's delivery of the Hebrew slaves out of Egypt is a story of one particular group's oppression over the other. And of course, that story, Exodus story has served as an inspiration for black slaves and their ancestors seeking emancipation in North America. Um, 
But uh, you know, the flip side of coin is that the very story of the Exodus is also related to the book of Joshua, right? So Exodus is before they are entering to the promised land and the book of Joshua is how they are getting into the promised land where we also see a kind of ethnic cleansing happening, right? As the inhabitants of the promised land were Canaanites and others, including even all the creatures. And the book says they were utterly destroyed to make room for the Hebrews and their religion. So that's a, that's a troubling. Um, and that very story of Exodus has been used to uh, justify uh, conquering other lands. The Babylonian oppression is following era, right? And and uh, so that that's a that's another um, oppression due to those ethnic and religious difference. That's probably one that we should unpack a little bit, because although Exodus is famous, the Babylonian uh, captivity is not so famous for some people. So folks, basically what happened was um, the Babylonians were based in what is now Iraq. Uh, they were the major empire of the day, and mm -hmm. they came and invaded uh, Israel and um, took over the north and then the south, and um, they completely razed Jerusalem, uh, destroyed the temple, took all the ruling ruling class of mm -hmm. um, uh, Jerusalem at that time and brought them back to Babylon. Other people were exiled to Egypt and just a tiny number of people were left in Israel itself. And basically the whole place went to weeds while the Jews were in exile for 70 years. Um, but in terms of the connection between uh, the kind of ethnic cleansing or racial uh, violence is, is found in the story of Esther as an example. Right, and, and uh, because uh, what happens in the story is, as you know, that uh, Haman uh, kind of attempts to eliminate the Jewish people. Um, and uh, the, uh, so, and this story kind of prefigures the 20th century Holocaust uh, during the Nazi era. Um, so, you know, some people think, oh, how can that kind of thing happen in the 20th century, you know? Um, and you might say, you know, that, that's nothing in a way new. <laughs> and the very story in the Book of Esther um, kind of foretells that, uh, that issue. Um, I think it's interesting, you know, the, the examples you're giving um, show that the idea of totally eliminating or totally dominating another people is firmly entrenched in the Bible. There's many instances of that, you know, and as you said, when the Exodus ends and Joshua brings this, the chosen people across the water, across the Jordan, they've been told by God they can take over any lands they want, so they do. Um, and mm -hmm. that idea, that idea that one group can be a chosen people and be superior to everybody else um, mm -hmm. becomes a key idea in Western colonialism and Western racism, because whites obviously say, well, mm -hmm. we're, you know, there are people who are allowed to be better than everybody else. It's in the Old Testament. Christians mm -hmm. believe that we're better than the Jews. 
we're mm-hmm. we're the right religion so it it's not that much of a leap for some people to say well god's taught us that some people are a lot better than other people so it's right. decided we've decided that we white people are better than everybody else right yeah so in many ways you might say that kind of the oldest form of the racism is actually uh, Christians against Jews, <laughs> right? That's that's already in the Bible, uh, you know, from the, you know, not only Hebrew scripture, but also New Testament and Apostle Paul's writings are somehow dangerous there as well. And the Gospel of John, um, knowing that uh, the, uh, the, the very community out of which that Gospel of John speaks is a very persecuted uh, Jewish minority who decide to follow Jesus. Um, and so if within their own Jewish groups, right, there are hatreds and, and uh, persecution happening. And because of that lived experience of that communities under a lot of pressure and persecution, they portrayed, you know, Jews are bad, right? And that uh, translate into then killer of Jesus and therefore so on and so forth. So those kind of uh, extreme violence against certain group um, does uh, contain in the Bible. Um, but then, you know, going to Jesus era, um, the very fact from the, you know, Matthew 1st all the way to the end of John's gospel, we realize how many different ethnic groups uh, you know, between Romans, Jews, Samaritans, Greeks, and others who are not even named here are existing, you know, prominently. And many of Jesus' teaching is how to get along <laughs> and how to, you know, especially from a Jewish audience, uh, you know, because G- Jesus was a Jew and, and uh, tried to reform the communities. And so kind of opening up to the Gentiles, in other words, non-Jewish people. Um, So there is that uh, kind of breaching the barriers or kind of getting rid of those barriers for the sake of the reign of God that uh, we know that uh, the God we believe in do not discriminate and that everyone who looks different, who has differences are in God's sight, beautiful and good, inherent. Yeah, right? yeah. And, and Jesus goes so far out of his way to make that point with his parables, like the Good Samaritan story, which most people mm-hmm. just remember as being a story about, well, that's what a good person should do. They should help someone who's hurt at the side of the road. What we often don't hear in that story is that the Samaritans were, an, were a national group um, a little bit to the east of um, the Israelites in Jerusalem, and they were thoroughly hated by the Jews. Like you, mm-hmm. last person you wanted helping you at the side of the road, if you were a good Jew, was a Samaritan. And yet mm-hmm. Jesus makes the Samaritan the person who stops and picks up the the wounded man, and mm-hmm. it's really pushing it in their faces. Like, nope, actually, the reign of God, like that love mm-hmm. that God wants us all to practice, mm-hmm. has to come. Will can be present in everybody, regardless of their national or religious identity. That's so, right. Yeah. Jesus and is that, the great leveler in yeah, this. And that wounded man is Jewish man, right? And and the very several people who pass by for their good or not so good reasons, it's hard to know, 
um, are Jewish, right? So in other words, you are supposed to help your people, your kind of people, and yet it's the, the person that they despise the most, that they don't want to get along at all, are the ones who save this person's life. So it's ironic, but that's the, that's the point of the Christian faith, right? Um, that kind of paradoxical truth uh, that God is um, inviting us to embrace and live out. But the key with paradox is I keep um, reminding my um, parishioners is that the thing about a paradox is that you're, it's when two seemingly contradictory ideas are held together at the same time without the need That's to choose right. between one and the other, right? That's and, right. And it's so hard for us to do that. We always want to choose one side rather than the other. <laughs> <laughs> and Absolutely. that idea that, right? That idea yeah. that we're different but we should still love each other is like two ideas that we have a really hard time keeping in that's our minds right. at the same time. But yeah, that's kind of the I, point of the faith, you know? Yeah, exactly. And I think uh, the so-called the dangerous of the fundamentalism, or I would say kind of biblically literalist uh, views are dangerous is in part because that doesn't allow people to be both ends. And that fundamentalist view is that if this is right, then the other should be wrong. <laughs> but uh, you remember Fiddle on the Roof? Uh, some of you might uh, love that movie, uh, Norman Jewison's, our very own Canadian director. And in that story, uh, you know, I, this is one of my favorite uh, movies and, and uh, the rabbi, you know, uh, being asked question and, and, uh, and the rabbi said, yeah, this is right. And then the other said, oh, that can be right because of this. And then the rabbi said, yeah, you are right too. And so the third person said, how can that number one and number two, two are seemingly opposite direction could be right? And then the rabbi said, you are, you are also true, <laughs> right? And so the, the sense of um, holding the opposite views, perspectives, intention, uh, and being able to put somebody else's shoes, even if that is not from your own view, right? So to be able to uh, empathetically, but also just holding that as a part of life, because life we know is not predictable. <laughs> Who would have thought that we are living in, you know, COVID-19 uh, pandemic for almost two years, right? Um, yeah, exactly. And and one of the things which I tell people is that, you know, the it, Christians didn't choose the cross as a symbol right away. It took a few hundred years for it to settle down. It was a fish for a while and then it became the cross. But one of the nice things about the cross is it's something that points in two directions at once. Mm-hmm. That's that, a point. Yeah. That's what you got to remember with Christianity. You're being asked to hold two very different perspectives at once. Love your neighbor mm -hmm. and love God. But also, you know, these sorts of paradoxical things which we encounter in life all the time, spirituality is supposed to be a way to understand those rather than a way to run away from them. Yeah. So going back to the kind of the Bible, mm. um, I think really that is the key to understand 
uh, how to read the Bible is to noting that there are ambiguous and even ambivalent position in the Bible. So one story says that, but the other story says the otherwise. And, and we have to have um, both without losing sight of the each uh, position. And the, you know, um, that, so the, the, the Bible has that um, as, a, as a, almost like as a fact. So we cannot just choose one over the other, but also interpretation, right? So the Bible is written and we cannot do anything about that, it's there. Uh, but we have a choice how to read, how to interpret the very text. Sometimes troublesome, sometimes so affirming, right? And, and uh, so we need to learn to interpret the Bible in both liberated ways and also noting that this very text has been used in oppressive ways. So let's talk about that now, because um, racism, as we understand it, is something which really gets started around 500 years ago and picks up mm -hmm. steam over those 500 years. And, you know, the people who uh, started enslaving Africans um, mm -hmm. and indigenous people were Christian Europeans. So at a time yes. when Christian, you know, Christianity was, you know, totally in charge of the culture. So they must have justified their actions based on um, their interpretation of the Bible. Can you talk a little bit about how they yeah. went to the Bible to say, aha, good. see, we're allowed to do this to black and indigenous yeah. people. That's that's good. Um, so let me let me uh, share uh, one of my favorite uh, scholars, who is Musa Dube. Uh, she's a postcolonial feminist New Testament scholar from uh, Botswana, Africa, and and she talks about the Bible that has a tendency toward imperialism. The, from the Genesis to the Revelation, there are multiple imperial, uh, you know, regimes or powers, right? From the Babylon all the way through uh, Roman empires. Um, and yet she's saying, but there's also always a practice of creative resistance against that. So the Bible has both imperial move and motive and resistance against it. So, you know, holding that uh, aspects of Bible intention is really, really important. Um, so the, um, the reason why I think um, the people from the European descent um, going on a so-called uh, discovery, the new world, um, and found themselves encountering the people who look so different and most obviously with a skin color. Um, and they needed to categorize those people somehow. Um, and that's how this the very notion of Raza uh, as a difference um, came up. And, and the, uh, I mean, for them, you know, when you have the only kind of one kind of religious tradition and lived in that tradition for centuries, and, and uh, only kind of dominant uh, religion. And that religion in that sense was not just a, you know, one Sunday a worship service, but it's just a way of life. 
right? So all the things that they do uh, in terms of their marking the days as well as uh, living in a certain ways are very Christian centered. And, and uh, so for them, Christian should be the religion, not a religion. It's the definite universal uh, and therefore dominant. Um, it should be everybody's religion all over the world. Yeah, yeah. Right? yeah. And, and, uh, uh, and then of course, you know, um, people who went out, uh, out of Europe to see other places and Americas, right? That include North America, Central and Latin America, all of those um, uh, places have their own way of life, right? One of the culturally different and religiously, spiritually. I mean, I mean, these are the also people who had Mayan and other indigenous um, deep, deep, um, deeply reaching uh, traditions, and yet um, very foreign, right? Very different from what European Christians way of life. And, and uh, one way to uh, justify uh, why they can take their lands, right? Is have that hierarchy, right? That somehow Christianity as a religion is a superior uh, to theirs, more civilized, more advanced than theirs. Um, and so treating uh, other religions and their cultures, their way of lives as to the point barbaric. And I also- and I should, Yeah, I'd like satanic. to just break in here. Yeah, and satanic, yeah. exactly. One, one thing that um, we should just uh, footnote here is that, you know, in common culture, we do have this idea that, you know, the Europeans arrived and they found indigenous people who were living materially primitive lives. And of course it was a good thing that the whites came with civilization and all that stuff. But what we forget is that particularly when the Europeans went to Mexico and Central mm -hmm. America, they encountered cities that were far more developed and astounding to yeah. their eyes than anything they'd seen in Paris or London. Um, yes. When they got to Cusco, they found buildings literally coated in gold gold yeah. plate all over the place. They saw yeah. masonry. They couldn't even understand how they did it since there was no mortar holding the holding the uh, buildings together. The, the, their Mexico City itself was an artificial archipelago and they just couldn't believe it. Like, how could you even do that? How could you build a city like that? Um, mm -hmm. You know, so we have to get over this idea that, you know, Europeans arrived and they encountered a whole bunch of peasants who were, you know, they were just lucky that we arrived. On the contrary, like the, the writings that the Europeans did at the time marveled at the incredibly advanced civilizations they were finding, particularly in the middle section of the Americas. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, they were wondering, how did you do that? And, and mm -hmm. especially for people who didn't have the same kind of system of writing, it was just astounding. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, so just a side note there, really supporting your wonderful wisdom here is, um, you know, I grew up in Korea and uh, the uh, Korean history way back over 5,000 years and the press, the printing press uh, was developed in 1,234, so it's one, two, three, four. So I learned that, that, that uh, you know, during that time was a Buddhist um, 
kind of civilization in Korea, and they had uh, amazing sacred uh, scrolls upon scrolls of their text that are printed in using this very meticulous uh, advanced scientific printing press. But then later on, I learned, you know, that uh, it's a European uh, printing as the most noble, most advanced, you know, and that was like 200 years later. Um, so the, the very education of how certain things are developed and invented were already very biased, very Eurocentric, as if, um, you know, Korean printing wasn't even there, right? Let alone Chinese printing is even before that, right? And so um, it's a very limiting and, and, you know, prejudiced understanding of how knowledge, how certain scientific um, inventions were uh, coded, right? And, and uh, but in terms of going back to the Mexican, um, you know, Mayan and Inca uh, civilization, um, there is um, very clearly during the uh, European colonialism, and I call here three C's, uh, when the uh, Christian missionaries went on to so-called civilization mission, you know, there were capitalist uh, explorers and the government kind of military uh, ships went along. So those three C's have to go together, you know, Christianity, capitalism of that modern era, not now, but at the time, and the colonialism as a symbol of the ship, you know, um, voyage into the new world. Um, and uh, I wanna highlight here how the Bible, the very book, you know, the kind of tangible physical copy of the Bible was spreaded during that. Um, and this is a Mexican uh, liberation theologian feminist, uh, Elsa Tamez, uh, talking about this, and I'm going to quote here. During the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries, the Bible was used as a tool to conquer in many parts of the world. The reason why we need to pay attention to this particular period is because what happened then still impacts the way in which we read the Bible today in the post-colonial era. The Bible continues to be used to legitimize war and violence today. Such foundational faith stories as those in the book of Exodus and book of Joshua have fueled the political rhetoric of conquest and continue to contribute to the conquest rhetoric in our own time, including the war on terror after the September 11th. So in, it is those during the colonial heyday of the 19th and early 20th century that the Bible traveled the world. A civilizing and colonial mission was accelerated through the dissemination of the printed English Bible to every corner of the world at the expense of local and indigenous languages. And as I recall, they had they had a practice like the Spanish conquistadors had this practice where once they were satisfied that a tribe that they hadn't maybe conquered yet 
had no idea about the, the story of Jesus Christ, then they could move in and impose everything on them because they needed to save them. Um, mm. <laughs> you know, it, was, it was this horrible catch 22. Well, you're ignorant of Isn't what, it? you know, yeah. Um, yeah. and, and there was some sort of document, which they would read. I can't remember the name of it, but there was some sort of document, which they would read. Uh, and I think it was usually a priest who read it, who would read it just before they moved in to invade to just give them fair warning that, you know, according to our king and pope, we can do this because you don't know anything about Jesus Christ. And don't worry, it's all going to be yeah. much better for you once you do. Yeah, um, yeah. Astounding, and, and, but like it, it all makes sense as long as you start with the principle, we need to be in charge. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> so the, kind of one more quote, and then I'll, I'll uh, talk something about how... The same Bible that could be so oppressive can be also absolutely liberating. This is the beauty of the, I think, Christian faith. Um, that uh, the, So the British Bible Society, uh, who did support, right, spreading the Bible all over the world, uh, is, has a report called the, the, the Book About Every Book, and it's published in 1910, and it says so brutally but clearly, <laughs> not only the heathen, but the speech of the heathen must be Christianized. So in that report, their language itself needs to be born again. Their very words have to be converted from foul meanings and base uses and baptized into a Christian sense before those words can convey the great truths and the ideas of the Bible. So it's very blunt, right? Um, and wow. that's 10. So it's only 100 years old. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a haunting. I find that our ancestors did that. <laughs> um, however, the, here is a twist. And I love this because um, so the, we are talking about kind of modern colonialism that started uh, 1492, right? Um, and, and uh, you know, the indigenous people, especially in the uh, South America, weren't surrender, you know, passively. Um, and in fact, 500 uh, anniversary, so 1992, at that time, the Pope was John Paul II. And apparently he was visiting um, some Latino countries uh, in South America and a group of uh, indigenous people um, decide to kind of present um, and kind of declare that you didn't colonize us kind of notion. And this is a beautiful language. So I, I'm gonna also share this as a great example of the resistance. And the act, the performance of this uh, decolonizing act was that they decided to return the Bible to the Pope. Isn't that amazing? So uh, in the Bible was accompanied by a letter which uh, was read, and I quote here, we Indians of the Andes in America decided to take advantage of John Paul II's visit to return to him his Bible because in five centuries, it has given us neither love, nor peace, nor justice. Please take your Bible 
and give it back to our oppressors because the Bible was imposed upon America with force, European culture, language, religion, and values. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't that amazing? I mean, these, these indigenous people leaders decide to do that in front of the Pope, um, 1992. Um, mm. And I think um, the very force, very, uh, the spirit uh, of not succumbing, subjecting to that kind of oppression is the very spirit that also inspired the Bible to be written. Um, so it's, it's, it's really, um, I think, amazing. So going back to the paradox and going back to um, the ambivalent and the ambiguous uh, of, of uh, how we need to use the Bible. Um, and I guess it, it gets to that central contradiction, right? That the Bible, um, depending on how you read it, preaches a message of peace and love and understanding, compassion and action. Um, mm -hmm. so that so that all can be all everybody can thrive it's not that we can all be one um, because mm -hmm. that's just a flattening of all of our differences but it's so that we can all thrive and yet the next step with that often is well everybody should have this but it's not the sort of thing you can shove down anybody else's throat as those indigenous leaders said right you you can't just throw the bible at us beat us up with it and expect us to be you know loving wonderful mm -hmm. people you may want us to be submissive. You may want us to be slaves and never speak back to you. The Bible's certainly been used for that in lots of ways. But the idea of actually becoming, you know, what we would call good Christians, where you're genuinely loving and compassionate, that's something that every individual has to take on on their own and cultivate on a personal mm -hmm. basis. It's not something that can be legislated from above. So that, once again, it's that tension between the message of the Bible and the imperial impetus mm -hmm. within the bible right where it says mm -hmm. spread this word to absolutely everybody all over the world but what mm -hmm. it doesn't quite say as clearly is by the way you can't shove it down their throat <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so again you know the dimension of the faith is both very personal right something that we each individual has to do about it but also really political so there are you know, racial bias and uh, kind of prejudices could be personally felt and experienced, but ultimately is a systemic, is that structural side of the oppression that justified, endorsed, and perpetuate this oppression to keep going, right? So, uh, so you know, as a people of faith who believes in both personal and political, needs to to repent if we are you know, beneficiary of this racist system, but also change that system so that so-called the reign of God could be here and now on this earth, right? Um, and I think the Bible uh, in terms of its interpretation, in terms of how we use, has the power to shape us um, and and also allowing us to be critically probing it, right? The, the, the joy and the extreme gift of critical thinking, uh, being able to 
question why, you know, why that has happened, uh, and and deeply listening, uh, as in learning from the past, from those who directly experience the impact by the sin of racism, and then you know find the wisdom and the, that resilient and resistant stance um, of, of all the oppressions um, embedded in the Bible. So the Bible has that. Um, so, um, you know, as long as we know that the Bible has those kind of really multifaceted um, layers of meanings within, and, and that's the norm, right? It's not a simple single uh, slate uh, of the truth, but it's, it has that um, multi-exical kind of, you know, angles. Um, because the groups and the communities that represented in the Bible are so diverse, <laughs> right? So we can't, we can't just um, uh, narrow down into one group. And the uh, you know very Genesis that talking about power, I mean the Tower of Babel, right? And that God said, no, <laughs> we don't want to homogenize. We don't want one uh, group doing all, right? So that the scattered people and 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 so that the differences are the way that we humans and other living creatures can thrive and flourish rather than um, squeezed into one box. Yeah, and I think that that's, that's a really interesting point because <clears throat> we tend to look at the Tower of Babel story as God saying, nope, humans are getting uppity. I'm going to have to scatter them now and, you know, give them all these different languages. But I like the way you're, you, you're, you put that, that this mm. was God's way of saying, no, plurality is better than singularity. It's, mm -hmm. And and I think one of the th one of the things which we Christians need to get our heads around is that maybe it's a blessing. There's more than one type of faith out there, because our oh, faith yeah. can go so far wrong, as we have seen, that right. it's good to have Muslims and Hindus mm -hmm. and Indigenous people to say, "Um, excuse me, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, there's other ways of looking at this, which uh, may remind us that we're forgetting really important things in our tradition. And also, in the end, how could God be simple? Yes. Right? I mean, if God's anything, God's going to be complex. Just look at how That's complex right. the world is, right? So how, you know, we have this desire to reduce everything down into a couple of simple formulas. And that may make it easier to keep in your head, but it doesn't mean it gets you any closer to either small reality or big R reality. And, yes. you know, so many people leave Christianity after Sunday school and never come back to find out there was an adult version they were supposed <laughs> to stick around for, which is much more complicated and consistent with the kind of conversation we're having today. That's right. That's absolutely right. And, you know, the, you know, we are Trinitarian people, meaning, uh, that God and God in Jesus Christ and the guidance of the Holy Spirit are one, meaning the, the very work of the Holy Spirit are something that is beyond our comprehension, uh, that there are rooms for mystery. There are rooms for something that we can imagine, uh, 
the world that is impossible to grasp right away. So then the humility, right? But also exploration. Um, you know, the sky is the limit in that sense of the, there are room to grow and room to learn and room to appreciate uh, others who bring amazing gifts of their own um, and how encountering those different uh, traditions and groups and cultures enrich our own, but also I would say as a Christian, I'm unapologetically Christian and very proud of being Christian, despite our own Christian colonial legacies of white supremacy and racist legacies. However, when you and we uh, encounter the others who are very different from us, this is when we need to articulate, you know, why we still follow Jesus Christ and why this is still worth doing. Um, so I am extremely grateful for that kind of encounters. Not so much that I just want to learn others, but it's, it, you know, it, it really finds me in my own way. It's almost like a mirror, right? Those, those the others are the mirrors that help me to see <laughs> who I am, where I'm going, and why I'm here. <laughs> that kind of very ultimately fundamental questions of life, quest for life. And what, and what else we can be, right? Like it's so easy to um, define what a human being is just in terms of our own narrow compromise, you know, this sort of, oh, I've, I've knocked out all these things. I can, I can bear being a human being like this. Um, but when yeah. you meet other people who didn't make the same compromises as you, as you did, you went, oh yeah, human beings are actually pretty awesome. Yeah. I just forgot because I got too yeah. used to my narrow version. Yeah. And ultimately, you know, when I mentioned about Trinitarian theological view is, is ultimately God that I believe, is a relational God. In other words, God seeks relationship and that's a song of faith. Um, and, and so I cannot be who I am until and unless I'm in relationships, right? I'm in relationship with my own spouse. I'm in relation with my family and children and, and friends. And that makes me who I am, right? So I cannot live alone. <laughs> Nobody can live alone and nobody die alone, hopefully not, right? So that in all entire journey from the birth to death, um, we are, we are the tapestry of our relationships. Um, and the relationship shouldn't be so small and so narrow and, you know, and look like us only because that's so small, right? Uh, and so that, that kind of horizon of the relationships that, that often take risk to getting to, to know of those who are so-called strangers. And again, you know, going back to the Bible, how many times we see the term strangers from the get-go to the end, you know? Um, and ultimately God is the stranger. God is the other. We just, we cannot be God, God cannot be us. Um, but because of that differences, uh, I think we become whole. We become more authentically who we are um, of its own unique gifts and differences. So 
Um, and, 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 and in that sense, going back to the beauty of the Bible, um, and, and that, that shows if we have, you know, special lens to look at that way. Um, so. Well, awesome. This has been a great conversation. Thank you yeah, very much. Thank you, thank you for these, this invitation. Well, yeah. thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Peace be with you. Likewise. That was Reverend Stephen Milton of Lawrence Park Community Church in discussion with Professor Hiren Kim Craig of Emmanuel College at the University of Toronto. Now we're going to hear from our Lawrence Park Community Church Choir singing the contemplation chant. This chant includes words from five different faiths. today. The Rooster Crows podcast is produced by Lawrence Park Community Church in Toronto. We're a progressive Christian church located in North Toronto. If you'd like to explore our sermons, services, and other offerings, please visit our website at www.lawrenceparkchurch.ca. If you have any comments, please let us know. Our email is on the website. My name is Judy Pressman. I'm the Church Program Manager, and this podcast is edited by Luke Farwell. The music intro and closing music is provided by our music director, Mark Toes. Peace be with you.